from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to join the mailing list, and I begrudgingly set up a Twitter account for more exposure, so if you're on Twitter, give me a follow when you get a chance. My guest today is a brilliant crafter of short stories. She's had her work published in numerous anthologies and has just released her debut collection of short stories entitled The Broken Darkness. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Teresa Braun. Teresa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of March 2023. I came across your short story collection, The Broken Darkness, on Bookstagram and couldn't believe the depraved uniqueness of all 13 stories. Your prose is poetic, dark, compelling, and in some cases nihilistic, but at all times enjoyable. So I feel very fortunate to have you on the show today. Wow, thank you. I think uh, that's an amazing introduction. (laughs) Well, first off, before you even crack the book open, let me see if I can reach over here. Listeners at home, I'm doing my compulsory book holding. You've got this amazing cover. How much did you have to do with the concept for this design? And is there a particular artist we can give a plug? Yes, we can totally give a plug. I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, though, but I think it's Australia Designs. And she actually lives in Mexico, which nice. I did not realize until I sent her a copy. And I was like, holy cow. And I, I was inspired. I did like kind of a search for something I was thinking of. I definitely wanted a skull and like a frame and, you know, some things going on like that and saw something that I really liked. But the skull looked very like angry and scary. And I felt like it maybe had the wrong vibe. So I kind of described what I wanted to her and she worked her magic in it. I also really like the cover. Awesome. Yeah. I wondered if you weren't channeling the Jungian shadow at all. That's what I always wonder if horror authors are channeling their shadow, integrating it. I believe so. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I would definitely think that a lot of horror writers are in touch with the shadow side. Because isn't that what makes like humanity sort of horrific in general, right? Yeah. And, you know, that side also really kind of fascinates me as well. 
Yeah, you can't repress it or it'll just come back out in all sorts of weird ways. And you definitely can't give in to it. So you got to sublimate it some way. And I can't imagine any better way than creatively. You're right. Yeah, because otherwise, yeah, you could be doing and saying things that would maybe be inappropriate in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Some people can get away with it. But yeah, I guess there's a line, of course. I wasn't expecting you to go that deep so quickly. Wait, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a uh... yeah. No, no, no. Don't be sorry. I'm uh, I'm actually very uh, impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first story in the collection entitled "Dead Over Heels," and that's one thing that I found throughout this book is your titles. A lot of times are clever plays on words. It's a bit of a tragic love story. It's a combination of sex and violence, and has a very bittersweet ending. And I know so many people that would read that story and say, why in the hell would you want to read something that has an ending like that? Like life is rough enough already. Fiction is supposed to have a happy ending for the escapism it provides. Mm -hmm. So why do you think people like you and I like stories that have dark, unhappy endings? Well, I think that a lot of us have unpleasant or painful experiences, right? And so real life is messy and the messiness is sometimes painful, but sometimes it's cathartic. And sometimes it's, you know, even somehow in the end, after we reflect and work it all out, it's a good thing, right? Mm. So yeah, I tried to not make all of my endings like grim. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I, you know, have, especially if I'm writing about like romance or if it has some kind of element like that, you know, I think my broken heart sometimes, you know, comes through and, you know, because it would be nice to have that happily ever after or like, you know, I enjoy a rom-com as much as the next person too, right? But it doesn't always feel realistic, you know, when those stories end, you know, the way they do. So I think sometimes we don't always get closure and we don't always get things that we want. So I feel like that story kind of represents that, you know, the character finally gets something that she's always wanted and it doesn't quite work out the way she plans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, romance and grief are kind of intertwined. The unrequited love, Mm -hmm. the end of the relationship, you know, due to death and so on. I guess one kind of potentiates the other. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you were just writing a story that was, like you said, a rom-com or just, you know, like a romantic drama. Mm -hmm. Or if you just had like some sort of, I don't know, transgressive drama, something that didn't involve romance those side by side would not equal the mixture of grief and romance it would be like one plus one equals three Mm -hmm. yeah no i totally hear that and i do think that they're kind of like you know pain and ecstasy are kind of the they're almost like two sides of the same coin right Mm -hmm. you know because of course like when we give our heart to someone or we fall in love that deeply like they have the power to hurt us the most and, you know, I think we all risk that when we get in relationships. There's a an emoji where, you know, the image is like of the person like ripping their heart out and like handing it to someone. You know, it's kind of a good visual of like what we do in relationships. Mm. Yeah, you are giving a lot to someone. You know, you can be in this amazing relationship, but it's predicated on the fact that you've given a lot of yourself to that person. And I remember... I forget who I was listening to say it. They were talking about the concept of fuck you money. Like, you know, having so much money, you can tell everybody to fuck off. He's like, there's no such thing as fuck you money. There's just fuck you poverty. The more you have, the more you have to lose. 
Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we'll move off that <laughs> depressing uh, perception. But you're right in the sense that, you know, if you do find whoever you feel is maybe uh, like a you know, whoever believes in soulmates or like someone who's compatible with you or you find someone that sees you and like kind of accepts you for all of you, you know, and then Mm. that's the riskiest part, right? If we get into a relationship with someone that's just sort of there as a placeholder and we're, you know, spending time and still, you know, having fun and it's not that deep, I think a lot of people might end up, you know, settling for those kinds of relationships sometimes to not be alone. So I think I sometimes try to explore different variations of that experience. Well, the second story, entitled Collecting Empties, is about a woman succumbing to violent tendencies that are self-destructive and destructive to other people as well. This particular story, at least compared to the rest of them, was very short and very intense. I mean, it was just like a punch to the face and then it's over. So were you trying to emulate and therefore amplify the protagonist's mindset? Or was that just kind of the way the story evolved? Yeah, I think you could say it that way. I play around occasionally with flash fiction. I think that would qualify because I think, like you said, it's super short. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that can do really well with, you know, very limited amount of words. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily my favorite length to write. Sometimes when I'm putting something together, it's, you know, I'm trying something new or, you know, seeing if it works. And I was just trying to kind of explore someone who is completely detached and really struggling and suffering and handling it poorly, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) extremely poorly. Yeah. (laughs) And I upset one reader um, because I don't think this is necessarily spoiling anything, but, you know, there are certain rules supposedly with fiction, you know, you're not supposed to kill animals in the story or anything. And who makes these you know, rules? Like, well, I know, right? And, I and want I, names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people get very upset if something is happening to a baby in a story as well, right? But I think those are things to tap into because they are things that are so horrible, right? You know, a lot of us are animal lovers, you know, uh, you know, I guess puppies, kittens and babies are like one of the most vulnerable beings on the planet, right? Hmm. And so like when our heart like bleeds for them, it's a different experience or a concept, right? So I'm glad that you don't think that these rules should apply. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're a little arbitrary as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to admit my ignorance. I mean, I have a literary podcast. I'm just not familiar with flash fiction. Can you kind of round that out for me? Oh, sure. So flash fiction is just, you know, you're creating the story in a very short amount of words. So forget how many words it's supposed to be. I think mine might be a little bit over. And the shortest one, I think it's not necessarily flash fiction, but the shortest story that you can write would be like maybe, you know, a few words or a short sentence, right? There was one, I don't remember if it was Stephen King or somebody is super famous, but it's something about like the used baby shoes are, you know, (laughs) being thrown away or something. I'm butchering it, of course. Mm. But then, you know, it's just putting out this idea that what happened to the baby, right? You know, there is a story there, but it's almost like it's not on the page. It's more left to your imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be sometimes what flash fiction is supposed to do, where you have to fill in the the pieces. And Mm -hmm. some people are really skilled at that. And some people like to read it, but other people hate it, right? You know, just like everything, you can't please everyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I don't know if there are certain rules about like what has to happen. 
you know, there's the triangle where you have the exposition and the rising action, the, the climax and the falling action and the resolution, right? Mm. I don't know if you have to do all those pieces in flash fiction. I think sometimes it can just be like a snippet or feel like a scene. But to be honest, I'm not an expert. <laughs> that's about that's a little bit I know about flash fiction. <laughs> So the next story entitled The Celestial Assignment was a very interesting take on the afterlife. A lot of people say that the trials and tribulations that you go through in life are to prepare you for the afterlife. But in your story, people still have to work on themselves in the afterlife. So if it's not too personal, could you tell us about some areas where you've grown as a person from writing stories that maybe depict emotionally unhealthy people? Whoa. <laughs> Only if you um, want to. <laughs> you can pass. No, no, no. Like, that's totally fine. How have I grown writing about those experiences or writing about characters that have those experiences? A lot of times I draw from something that's either happened to myself or happened to somebody that I know. Not always, but this particular story was super personal. And I do feel like I worked out a lot of, you know, my perceptions of like how we get meaning from our life and what might happen afterwards. Because you're right, like most people assume like, you know, you've lived life and, you know, whatever happens in the afterlife, it's almost like you've, you've gone to a better place, you're, you can rest, you, know, mm. you can sit on the, the cloud, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I just, I thought, what if we have to learn from our life experiences? And for those people that believe in reincarnation, supposedly we come back and we have to continue to work on things and we change our perspectives, right? And sometimes the thought that, for example, someone that might be racist might have to come back as the other race that mm. they don't like or whatever and to kind of have to experience it, you know, be in their shoes. And I think sometimes when maybe someone disappoints us or, you know, does things to hurt us, we kind of hope that there's karma or they learn some kind of lesson, right? Mm. So I think I kind of took that concept and sort of put it into the afterlife. And it was kind of inspired by an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I have this T-shirt that it's like, you know, be careful or you'll end up in my novel. <laughs> so, I think a lot of writers do that. And yeah. if you don't like someone in real life, you can always write a story about them and portrait them in fiction. And uh, you're not hurting anyone. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And I don't know whether they read it or not. I'd say the chances probably of them reading it are probably small. So, <laughs> you know, and it's not you're changing names, you're changing circumstances and things like that. So, well, if they were somebody that harmed you, chances are they were a dumbass and they wouldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in your story, Guilty as Cell, and again, clever play on words, you talk about, about you, a very, you. you're quite welcome. You talk about a very real danger involving the use of cell phones and driving, which is almost as bad as driving intoxicated. It's very scary fodder for a story because you do something that is technically evil, but you don't mean to. You're just being careless. But that doesn't change the fact that you still have to suffer for it. So are there any other gray areas like this that you've written about or want to write about? Well, what do you mean by gray areas? Well, like something clear cut would be, I don't like this person or I want his wife, so I murder him. So like in his case, he didn't mean to kill his friend, obviously, but he was being careless and it resulted in it. So he still kind of has to suffer the consequences. So morally, it's kind of a gray area. 
So I guess I should have worded it that way. Are there any other moral gray areas that you want to write about or have written about that I haven't read myself? Yeah, I definitely think about gray areas a lot. Off the top of my head, I don't know how many of them have made it into my writing. But, you know, I do think that, like you said, we can make mistakes, right? And do things that are careless or thoughtless without intending to be and, you know, have to deal with it for the rest of our lives, right? Mm. Like something like, you know, drunk driving. And you might even just not eat maybe just a couple extra drinks and just not as alert and you're in an accident and something happens. Like, you know, of course, that would be like horrific. But I've watched some true crime where people have actually tried to run over someone that they hate and they're literally trying to murder them, right? So mm-hmm. obviously the intention is different, but the outcome is kind of the same, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And something like that that's intentional could happen for a number of reasons, right? You know, someone doesn't get enough sleep and they're behind the wheel. And I mm-hmm. keep using these car examples, but, <laughs> you know, or, you know what if, right? <laughs> yeah. Or another idea that just came to me was, you know, someone working like a carnival or something and they don't completely click the lock on someone's ride Mm -hmm. and something happens to them, right? Obviously, they didn't intend for that to happen, but it's tragic nonetheless. And I think sometimes that might be scarier for some people Mm -hmm. because if someone's evil, we kind of expect them to do evil things, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't expect someone who seems sweet to do something terrible. And I think sometimes that that's a real threat, I think, for everyone. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things that came to my mind, and it involves a car, but not drinking and driving is those cases you hear about where, like, for instance, here in Houston, somebody that is supposed to drop their child off at daycare and just completely spaces, drives to work, gets out of their car and leaves, and the child bakes in the summer heat. Like, What could be more evil than subjecting a child to extreme heat to the point where they die of hyperthermia? But I sometimes wonder how that's possible. I'm not a parent myself, but I I would think that it would be close to impossible. But there's been some things that have happened in my life where I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I did that. That was the dumbest thing I've ever done. So it's probably a good thing I don't have children, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. Like, or I remember, I don't know why I'm going to tell the story, but maybe there's a reason. I used to live with my brother for a little bit and I wasn't home a lot and uh, he had a hamster and he didn't ask me to take care of it or feed it or anything and assumed he was doing that. It was his pet, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess he just forgot about the hamster or what have you. And I had to end up burying it because it ended up dying probably of starvation or mm. dehydration or something. And I remember I was so heartbroken by it. And I know my brother wouldn't have meant to have killed the hamster, right? But it he? still happened nonetheless. The I was going to make a joke. How old was the hamster or my brother? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, my brother was like a grown man, like probably in his 30s when this oh, happened. okay. Yeah, but he was kind of preoccupied with his son, who was very young, and he was working a lot, and I think there was a lot on his mind. He probably should have never purchased the hamster in the first place. But I mean, I don't think my brother's an evil person. Oh, Um, no, no, no. Obviously obviously I'm still a little bit traumatized by it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, the story entitled Lost Time is short, intense, and cryptic. Was the story purely an emotional experience or is there a hidden narrative? Because that was probably the one that really like, I was like, what's happening here? Oh, I love talking about this one. Okay. So this 
is actually inspired by an experience my dad had. So that story, like the main character is my dad. Okay. And my dad's in his 70s. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll try and get him to talk more about it because he had this kind of close encounter with aliens, which is really what the story is about. Sometimes when he tells the story, he'll say that he doesn't remember what happened. And then other times he's like, I can't tell you what happened because you like flip the hell out. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my mom, had, you know, because this happened early in their marriage. I think they maybe married a few years before I was born. And she's had to live with him since this experience. So, yeah, well, that's basically where the story came from. Interesting. So can I ask, in the end, is he attempting to take her somewhere for something nefarious in any way? You know, I wasn't sure myself what I really thought would have happened there. Is that as far as your dad told you? Like the actual story? The actual story is that he was driving on the back road with no lights. There are no street lights. And, you know, so he's completely isolated, right? And so he runs into this car on the side of the road, which he describes as kind of looking like a hearse, you mm-hmm. know, which would have been a little creepy. And, <laughs> you know, at night it's dark, you know, and then all of a sudden there's a hearse there. Yeah. And then he describes the figures that he sees and described that they didn't seem to have necessarily like a positive intention, mm-hmm. right? So... That moment when one of them kind of reaches inside his coat, you know, it's like, is it going to be a laser or is it from like, you know, Men in Black where they click a light and you forget everything? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't really know what happens at the end because it could be that maybe he was turned into an alien or implanted with something or maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things where maybe it's not that dark or sinister. Mm -hmm. Maybe he just wants to (laughs) hang out with his wife. But it seems odd, right? You would think that he would go home and just want to go to sleep, right? Yeah, I was just curious to know if the actual story, if he attempted to take his wife somewhere and she was like, get the hell away from me or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That part I made up. I don't don't think he, yeah, I think he just went home and was like, wow, holy crap, I had one hell of an evening. (laughs) And I didn't ask him if he told her right away about it or if he waited, you know, because sometimes when something really wild happens to you, you have to process it a little bit before you tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to ask him that. Yeah, especially if it's something that you think if you tell people, they'll be like, okay, whatever, dude, you've been drinking a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, hard to talk about stuff like that. I think my only, I've never really had an experience like that. And I feel like I've been cheated. (laughs) Well, you're still young. You can still have uh, an experience. (laughs) Well, for a while in my childhood, there were a lot of abduction stories, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've always been kind of fascinated about that or whatever. I've heard less and less of them. I think in my older years, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not happening to people, but... I feel like for a while there was like a big scare that, you know, aliens were taking over the planet. Mm. What are they here for? What are they doing? Kind of stuff. Well, it seems like it's morphed from UFO, unidentified flying object, and alien abductions to modern day. It's now UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon, I think, with no abductions as far as I know. I guess UFO is tied up with what they consider stuff that's not real. I think whatever's been unidentified flying before and whatever's been unidentified flying now is probably close to the same thing. That's just so heavily documented now that they can't deny it. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. So I guess the new acronym, doesn't it legitimize it a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, because nobody wants to say UFO because they think like flying saucers and, you know, ET, stuff like that. but. Everybody's got 
a high def camera on them all the time. So like if there's stuff in the sky, it used to be one person had one of the, you remember those old camcorders you had to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. If somebody happened to have one of those videotaping, a, I don't know what they'd be videotaping at night, but they're like, Oh, they could catch this dot in the sky that seemed to be not flying, but hovering with no visible propellers or anything like that then that's all you had to go on. But now anytime something happens, you've got like 6,000 people with their camera phones out, all uploading it to social media. So I can't really deny it. So I guess. Yeah, totally. I guess instead of saying UFOs. You think that they would have more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you think there would be more footage now that, like you said, everyone has a camera. I mean, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. People don't really go outdoors much anymore. (laughs) Well, you know, there's truth to that. I guess we're safer inside, yeah. right? <laughs> well, I could relate to the story entitled Heathen quite a bit. Yep. Delvin was a lot like me when I was younger, but he was definitely cooler than I was. Even though he was a bit of an outcast, I liked his don't give a fuck attitude, you know. With the way the story ends, leaving Delvin in a position to achieve amazing things, are we going to see his character again? I hadn't really thought about that till now, but yeah, I think that would actually be pretty interesting to think about, you know, what does happen to him after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe part two. Sweet. That story, I don't know. Every once in a while, I like to think that maybe someone might think of something in a different way because I kind of tried to flip the script on that story. I had different plans for Delvin mm-hmm. and then I'm like, no, it's too expected. And I wanted to kind of change things up a little bit you know, the ending kind of seems to surprise him too, you know? Mm, yeah. Speaking of, well, I won't say that. I don't want to give a spoiler, but in your story, Stillborn, the one word that comes to my mind is bizarre. The mad scientist, so to speak, Dr. Reynolds, makes mention of improvement of the species. And I have this love-hate relationship with Elon Musk. I love Tesla's rockets and his plan to colonize Mars. He's like a modern day Tony Stark. Like I'm waiting for the Iron Man suit, the actual Iron Man suit. But anyway, the whole Neuralink thing. Are you aware of that? His project, the Neuralink? No, tell me. Oh, God. Yeah. It's basically implanted into your brain and it allows you to do an Internet search by thinking it. Because, you know, we're kind of the smartest people in the world with this in our hand. You know, listeners at home, I'm holding my smartphone mm-hmm. because you can ask me a question that I have no background in whatsoever. And I can have probably a very detailed, mostly correct answer in just a few seconds. So imagine not even having to do that. You can just think the search and have the information in your head. You mm-hmm. know? It's an amazing concept, but I think that's, you know, going a little too far. Just when you're trying to alter consciousness on a biological level or just alter human biology as a whole, it just kind of freaks me out. So was the concept for stillborn based on any real or dystopian concept like the Neuralink? No, I did not really have anything specific in mind. But now that you say that, it's pretty fascinating, right? I think sometimes that whoever is creative, right, we kind of tap into the, what is it, the universal consciousness, Mm. right? Where, you know, maybe we don't always understand like what we're channeling into our art, but, you know, there is some kind of universal truth there. And 
so I think that's really interesting that that you say that because I think in the back of my mind I did know that scientists have been talking about this and you know um, science fiction writers have been sort of toying with the idea that yeah we'll be able in the future to do lots of things with our minds like we won't really need a cell phone you know we could pay our bills with like our thoughts or you know do <laughs> lots of things that way which is completely terrifying mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um because then you're gonna have to wonder like if we can all do so many cool things with our minds like that then how are we all going to interact and how is that going to you know play into our our reality right because we've already got that blurring of reality with our cell phones in the first place mm. right yeah i mean that's the psychic phenomenon of telepathy i guess is what that would be everybody has a chip in their brain and we can mm-hmm. transmit our thoughts to each other without having to talk which i mean yeah. i've heard i've heard speech described i think it was joe rogan that said it he was talking about have you ever thought about how crazy language is? I am putting a thought in your head by making noises with my mouth. <laughs> so doing it with a uh, chip would probably be the next step in that evolution. But I don't know. Human evolution that involves technology just kind of freaks me out regardless of what it is. Yeah, no, I completely relate to that. When the computer first came out, I'm like, I don't want to use this thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was telling my students a while ago when I went to college, some of my papers I typed on an old fashioned typewriter and stuff. And I had a really big resistance to that. And, you know, here we are. We can't live without computers. We can't live without our cell phones in modern day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, as much as things have advanced during my lifetime, I feel like you're right. Things could completely get crazier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in your story, and again, great title Legend Trippers. You delve very much into the supernatural. So is there a particular type of fiction that you prefer to read and write? Supernatural or stories that take place in the material world? Whoa, you're making me pick? (laughs) Well, no, no. Well, I don't know if I can pick in two different areas because somebody told me that they prefer to read supernatural, but prefer to write the material world. Okay, so the question is, if I like to write about like more of a realistic situation or something that's more supernatural. Yeah. So, you know, I really like mixing the two. I'm a huge believer in things that we can't see and lots of things that a lot of people would describe as supernatural. So I think I'd like to delve into that a lot. But then, you know, I don't want to limit myself to the things that we find that are supernatural, right? Like most people gravitate towards ghosts, let's say. Because, yeah, I think a lot of my stories have some kind of supernatural element, which I feel sometimes like it's in the way of our reality or does it enhance our reality, right? Mm. Does it make us, you know, think outside the box or do things that we wouldn't normally do? So I I don't even know if I'm answering the question, but I I do like to toy with things that are supernatural for sure. Well, hearing you talk about it, it reminds me of when I interviewed Dean Radin who works for the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which studies psychic phenomena. And he uses the term supernormal as kind of like a semantics game, because I started to think like, well, what exactly would be supernatural? Well, ghosts. Why? Because you can't see them? I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not part of the natural world. They're just, there's something different about them. They cease to inhabit a body. They're just like this non-corporeal energy that can't be seen by the naked eye, but probably can be measured in some way. We just don't know how to do it. 
so asking you whether you like supernatural or grounded in the material world, I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of a semantic argument that's kind of hard to define. <laughs> no, you're right. I would completely agree with you. You Because, know, you know, we think of maybe uh, moments like in Ghostbusters where they are trying to get some specific evidence, mm. you know, you think of the slime, right? But what's interesting, too, is that you can prove things to somebody with evidence and they still might be like, I don't believe in ghosts still. Yeah, <laughs> true. You know, and things like possession, too, right? Those are hard to prove. Is someone just freaking out? Are they high? Are they having a psychotic break, mm-hmm. right? I'm thinking, too, of the idea that ghosts are kind of a projection of our minds. Like maybe some of us are somehow uh, like a conduit for spiritual like phenomenon and we're sort of like this beacon that manifests the spirit and that's why we see it you know so it's an interesting question too like is it coming from us or is it from the outside of us Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things to think about there's a lot of moving pieces with that Mm -hmm. so in your story dying for an invitation it's a great play on the legend of the undead and when it comes to the many iterations of the vampire i was curious to know which version is your favorite and why and please god don't say twilight oh, oh it's god. okay it's okay it's okay if it's no, no 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 <laughs> i um i actually did read twilight uh-huh. um because i teach high school some people out there might know but i was like what's the craze and why is everybody really into this story i'm like i gotta i gotta read it and i tell you i almost didn't finish it i <laughs> wanted to throw the book against the wall and i was like what is happening <laughs> like i just i didn't see the appeal and i didn't go forward i was stopped the first book right and i did see a couple of the movies and you know they're entertaining but yeah no they'll probably be my least favorite yeah <laughs> but there's so many good ones for a while i was really reading a lot of them there's the Vampire by Polidori. I believe he was a friend of Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley. Yeah. I think that he was on their camping trip where they came up with these like horror stories. And that's a really great one. Recently, last summer, I read Camilla mm-hmm. and heard about that story again when I was traveling. And I know it's going to be a boring answer, but I do really like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, oh, I'm you know, right I there know. with you. Okay, cool. Because I, I mean, I, there's a reason I guess it's so popular, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just there's just so much to it. And the way he kind of captures this idea of, you know, regular human beings that are charismatic, you know, you can see this easily with like celebrities and stuff. Mm. But to imagine that there's somebody who's supernatural that can really like, be like the ultimate con artist, Mm. (laughs) you know, and and just sort of, you know, draw you in and literally devour you Mm. whole like your soul and all right. I think is really an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And I would like to read Anne Rice. I haven't yet, but I've seen the movies, which I know is not always the same experience, right? But I do love vampire stories. I kind of resisted writing one for a really long time because I'm like, how am I going to add something new? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then I went on a, a writing trip to uh, Transylvania and we oh. went to the Bram Stoker's castle. And then I took a separate tour of all of Vlad the Impaler's like, you know, castles and, oh and, and different things. And and then we went to this haunted mansion, which is actually the inspiration for the female character in the story. And, you know, I thought, you know what? I can write about Romania because I've been here for a little bit and, you know, I can switch up the story a little bit. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Anne Rice. I have seen Interview with a Vampire, the movie, but as far as reading... I was really into her Mayfair Witch series, the Mayfair Witches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's been so long since I've read it. I forget. I think the patriarch of the family was Basher, I think. Okay. It's been so long. I'm talking about high school, like 16 years old, something like that. So. Well, I'm impressed you remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of uh, partying <laughs> in, in between those two periods. So, well, your story, Homecoming, was indescribable. It was another example of a tragic romance. Do you have any plans to write a novel? And if so, will it be a dark romance? Well, I have to say that's one of my favorite things to write is definitely dark romance. Mm -hmm. Although I think the genre by definition, because I, I recently went to a romance writing conference and there were some people that write dark romance. But I think by definition, like the main character has to be extremely morally gray or morally repulsive, I guess, mm -hmm. and be willing to do things that are definitely out of socially accepted like practices, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I ever want to go that dark. And I can't say never because I kind of said never to the vampire story and I wrote one anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but I have two manuscripts that kind of qualify as that, that I'm kind of polishing at the moment. One is about a couple that they're getting married in Greece. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the father-in-law or the future father-in-law is up to some really <laughs> scary supernatural things. Mm -hmm. And it's threatening their happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. So the bride has to kind of figure out what he's doing. She has to unfold this mystery and then try to stop it. And hopefully she figures it out by the end, right? Mm -hmm. And there's another one that I'm writing. Speaking of like witches, basically the storyline is about two sisters and they happen to be twins. Mm -hmm. And they kind of like end up swapping places and like kind of goes haywire, I suppose <laughs> you could say. And there is a love triangle in that particular story as well. And I have a couple other ideas on the horizon for that. Speaking of dark romance, I just think it's kind of interesting to write, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that love can be complicated, but then when you throw in the supernatural aspect or you throw in something that's a little bit darker, it makes that reality like even more threatening. Mm. Well, the next story, Stay Tuned, was definitely my favorite out of the whole collection, not just for the premise of the story, but because it deals with the dark net and this whole other alternate reality that exists in cyberspace, you know, whether you're on the normal or the dark web. So I know that the dark web is a very dangerous place to visit, and you can see a lot of weird, crazy shit. So have you ever gotten on the dark web and, you know, used the Tor browser or Tails or anything like that? Sounds like you have. I have. I have. <laughs> um, and by the way, no. by the way, full mm -hmm. disclosure, it's not illegal to use the Tor browser or Tails. It's when you start <laughs> trying to buy drugs and stuff like that. That's illegal. <laughs> Oh, no, no. I by no means was, was accusing you of that, but I, I'm glad you, you clarified that for your, your audience. <laughs> no, no. No, I'm talking about the federal agents that are listening. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, just letting them know. Oh, yeah. We have, I'm hoping you have a few of those yeah. as fans of your podcast. Hell That'd yeah. be pretty cool. <laughs> I have been very curious about the dark web. My only experience is sort of vicariously through some of my students who have kind of told me a little bit what it's like and what's on there. But to be honest, I've been a little bit afraid of going on there and looking around because already my browser history is probably something that could be flagged easily. <laughs> Every writer's browser history looks like they're out of their goddamn mind. <laughs> you know, I've Googled things like, you know, how long does it take for flies to swarm around a dead body? Oh, right? yeah. It's surprisingly quick, actually. Is it's it? like, yeah, I think it's like 30 minutes or something. 
Well, I mean, um, they, but, they know, swarm they around my live body. It pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but not awesome at the same time. But I think one day I might go on there and check it out. But also, besides my fear of my browser history, there are probably people monitoring us all the time mm-hmm. and, and what have you. And since I'm a teacher, you know, I don't necessarily want to put up any extra red flags. Mm-hmm. But I'm super curious about it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I watched that movie. I forget what the guy's name is, but his web handle was the Dread Pirate Roberts. He made the Silk Road, that illegal marketplace where you could buy guns and drugs. And I think you could hire hitmen too, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, man, I, I, I not to do that stuff, obviously, but just <laughs> hearing about the dark web, I was like, man, I want to get on it and see what it's all about. So I didn't go anywhere illegal. Anybody listening, I'm not a psychopath, but (laughs) there are normal websites that also have dark web onion sites that you have to use the Tor browser for. And so I just wanted to see what it was like. And I think the only reason to get on the dark web is to avoid the law because it's slow as hell because, you know, Tor is rerouting you all over to these different nodes so that you're not traceable. And everything's bare bones, like the website is just kind of like bare HTML. There's no JavaScript because that takes up so much resources. So it's like, yeah, okay, I've been on the dark web. but (laughs) There's not much reason to get on here, I don't think, unless you're doing something illegal. I would agree with you. And I wouldn't want to participate in anything either for anyone that's listening. Um, (laughs) But I think just as far as exploring the dark corners of the human mind and what some people are interested in or into and what you can do. Like, I think in that respect, I think that's why I'm interested in it for sure. Yeah. Well, your story, while my guitar gently weeps was really interesting because the whole story seems like just this orgasmic experience for a guy that's in the throes of a midlife crisis. And the only untoward thing that happens happens very briefly And if you weren't concentrating fully, like you just weren't fully involved in the story, you might actually miss it and think, oh, I just read a story about a really lucky guy. So was that meant to throw the reader off balance at the last minute and give the audience the power to choose how the story ends? And if not, what was its intention? Yeah, I definitely think that that's where it was headed. American audiences tend to hate open-ended movies or stories, Mm. right? Where you have to think or you're left like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I try to wrap things up most of the time, but every once in a while, I do like to leave it kind of open-ended. So yeah, for sure. For sure. Why American audiences? What is it about us that we don't particularly care for that? Is it just... Well, and things might have changed, but the last time I kind of looked into this, our attention spans are much shorter than people in other countries, although mm. that might have changed now with things like TikTok and whatnot. Um, it's gotten worse. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Already, yeah our, definitely our attention spans have gotten way worse. <laughs> but I remember watching a foreign film one time. It was an Asian film. I don't remember who the director was. And there was this scene where the boy was running and you could see him running from the bottom of the screen all the way to the top of the screen. And it seemed to take forever. Mm. Right. And the movie was in color. It wasn't that old. Mm -hmm. But I feel like an American audience would be like, this movie is trash. Why do we need to see him running that long? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the point? We just want to split screen to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, kind of where American audiences are for the most part. Do you have Shudder at all? The streaming service? Oh, okay. Well, there's no, not, not anymore, though. Oh, okay. 
There is this movie, it's trending, or what is it called? Featured. I'm sorry, featured, where when you open it up, it's in the big blocks on top, the featured movies. And it's called Skinamarink. And there are some people that love it, but so many people hate this movie. And I was like, I don't understand. So I looked up the trailer and then I read up on it. It's these incredibly long, like people even describe them as agonizingly long shots. And I think one guy actually said shots that outstay their welcome. (laughs) So I'm like, well, I wonder if that's it. Like, I don't remember the director's name, if he's American or or not, but speaking specifically about American audiences not liking particular story elements because of a short attention span, I would imagine that has a lot to do with people's hatred of this movie. <laughs> so uh, uh, if you get a chance after we're done here, just watch the trailer for that and see if you don't agree with me. Like, oh, yeah, somebody with a <laughs> short attention span would not be into this. I will definitely have to check that out. Well, the last story, Heirloom, the Coup de Gras has elements of reincarnation, sex, violence, psychological terror, and a really deep look into the introspection of a therapist. And when I was younger, even as an adult, I thought that therapists were the most sane people in the world and could say or do nothing wrong, which turned out to be completely untrue. (laughs) (laughs) There are some that are amazing, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's still people like us and just as prone to neurosis as we are, even if they're able to recognize it. So are there any other positions of not necessarily power per se, but positions of high esteem that people put a lot of faith in that you've had bad experience with and want to write about? Oh, yeah. No shit. (laughs) Um, Dish girl. I. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I worked at a Catholic school for probably about 20 years. And then before that, I was at a Catholic school for high school. And then my dad, in my youth, he was a Lutheran pastor for a little bit. And I I think that religious figures definitely interest me a great deal. Mm -hmm. And there are so many great documentaries about some of the scandals, you know, that have happened. And that would definitely be something that I'd want to explore. I toyed with writing a story set in a Catholic school, actually. Oh, yeah. Hmm. The old televangelist meme, I can't remember how old I was, probably in the 80s. Was it James Baker and... uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, God. And uh, Jimmy Swaggart. And um, Mm -hmm. there was one one guy. He was one of those preachers that did the um, camps for gay people to pray away the gay, I guess. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It turns out he was gay and doing meth. (laughs) I'm sure there's a documentary on that I got to (laughs) watch. Like, dude, it's okay to be gay. Right. <laughs> so you're talking about a Catholic school. Are you talking about the nuns that teach? Or are you talking about the priests? Well, I think the thing that kind of interests me would be in line with what you just said, right? Somebody who is hypocritical, mm-hmm. right? So I worked with someone who was a priest and he would use the things that the kids said to him in confession and he would write them up. Right. So if they said that they cheated on an exam or whatever, he'd be like, oh, I'm going to write you a referral. So where is the uh, where's the 
incentive to actually be honest. (laughs) Well, exactly. And that's not the purpose of confession, right? Like, and so there would be kids that would say, I'm not going to that priest for my confession, because obviously it could go horribly wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he would also pull the kids over in the parking lot, try to wave them down while they're trying to drive off the parking lot. And he'd be like, you're chewing gum. You're not supposed to chew gum in school. And then one girl told me she just like spit it out onto the pavement. It was like, okay, (laughs) we're good now. She's in her car. She's taking the gum with her. (laughs) She's not going to be sticking it under a desk. Uh And she's not speaking in class, chewing like a cow or anything. So she was just kind of like, why can't I chew gum in my own car? This is ridiculous Uh kind of thing. It was more of the kind of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law kind of guy, right? And it's just one character, right? I don't think I'd want to write necessarily about the abuse aspect. It would be more of the politics and the interaction with other human beings. And then, of course, it would be fun to throw in something supernatural. (laughs) Mm, Definitely. (laughs) Well, you are an English teacher Mm -hmm. and an adjunct college professor, correct? Yes. Okay. So we were talking about dystopian concepts earlier. Mm -hmm. Have you ever played around with chat GPT? And do you think that you'll have to deal with your students using it to write papers? And what do you think of AI in general? Judging from the look on your face, you're like, oh, those little bat. No. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't expecting this question either. You've got some really good questions. I recently, and this is the current season, I think, of South Park. They did an episode on that exact thing. Oh, God, I can only imagine. And (laughs) it is hysterical. (laughs) Like, I almost peed my pants. Uh. Like, it was so good. (laughs) Because the kids use it to chat with their girlfriends. Uh Because they don't have the emotional capacity to relate to their girlfriends, really. Uh And so they do the AI to to chat them (laughs) up and... The girlfriends love it, of uh, course, because they're saying all the right things uh, and they're being all lovey-dovey. And then where it goes wrong, of course, is when the girlfriends, <laughs> they start asking them questions about things that they've mentioned in the chat and they have no idea what the girlfriend is talking about. <laughs> and so they basically get busted, right? Uh-huh. But in the process, they're also using it for their essays. And then the best part, I think, is when the teacher realizes that they're using it, but then he uses it to grade their papers. Mm. (laughs) And I think it's a brilliant adaptation of like reality and the temptation to be lazy, right? Yeah. I actually had a discussion post as an assignment in the last couple of weeks about AI and writing assignments in particular. And some kid raised his hand and he goes, can I use AI to complete the assignment? (laughs) (laughs) Like, "Mm." no. So we were talking about how if you can create the AI to fabricate your writing, right? And of course, other things too, like artwork and voiceovers and all kinds of things can be replicated with AI, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to have to develop software and things to detect it. But is it always going to be able to detect it? I don't know. And I kind of hope I retire before this becomes like a big issue. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) because... Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't think it bodes well, right? Because less and less people want to read in general and less people are going out for English degrees. So I don't know if there's going to be anyone in the future to actually be qualified to teach an English class. Mm -hmm. And so that's a problem in itself. So, you know, and then you've got the other side, you know, what's the point if you're going to fabricate all of your assignments, right? Are you really learning anything? And I could ramble on about this for days. Yeah. (laughs) Well, So I didn't even know what it was until one of my friends was like, hey, have you ever used ChatGPT? And he told me what it was. He's like, 
why don't you use it to write podcast questions? I was like, I don't think that's going to work. And he's like, no, no, let's try it. And he asked me, uh, I forget who I had just had on. It could not pick up their book because I think the cutoff is like post 2021, maybe. So any ISBN number or whatever wasn't going to show up. But I think he fed in right podcast questions relating to a book about, and he kind of briefly described the plot. And it generated the most basic, milk toast, emotionless drivel I've ever heard in my life. And so I downloaded it. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever gotten to an argument with it? No, but that sounds fun. It is. If you keep <laughs> at it and use logic, you can actually back it into a corner because it's programmed with certain axioms of what's acceptable and what's not. It's a machine, though, so it runs on logic. So if you start feeding it contrary information that's logical, you can back it into a corner where it'll either agree with you or it'll say, I apologize, but as an AI, I'm not equipped to have this conversation or whatever the <laughs> whatever the term is that he uses. It's weird. That's wild. Yeah. So if you ever want to get into an argument with a <laughs> an AI program, I highly recommend it. <laughs> oh. Well, and there's so many... Um... What was that movie with Joaquin Phoenix where he falls in love with like um, the her her? Yes. Oh, they've got that. It's a uh, what's it called? Replica. Yeah, that is eerie. Have you ever messed around with that? No. Oh, it is like I deleted that, but I downloaded it just to see what it was like. I was like, this is just weird. I can't <laughs> like it is super weird. Mm -hmm. Well, and then did you ever see the Black Mirror episode where the main character, her boyfriend dies and she's able to order a robot that's like exactly like him and they take all of his social media, his emails, like anything they can get a hold of and they feed it into this program mm. and they basically create this robot that sort of acts like him, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really scary things. And that's what the replica thing does. At first, it just gives you these blanket answers. Mm -hmm. But as you feed it information, it develops like a profile on you, Ooh. you know, and it just starts. Oh, it just starts getting weird. But back to chat GPT, though, I think you would be able to tell if your students were using it, if a lot of them were using it, because any papers that you got from students that were using it would all have the same milk toast basic, just, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, you can tell it came from a program. There's just no heart in it, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. And here's the thing too. I think if that becomes a serious problem, let's say it gets better and it develops to the point where it's harder to tell, right? The Turing, Turing test, is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, one way around this is to get the kids to write everything on paper in person. Yeah. Go back. You know what I mean? Just like, evolve. Yeah. <laughs> And some of them actually appreciate that. There's something to be said for the tactile experience that's not on a screen or from a device, you know? Uh -huh. Well, what is the life of Teresa Braun like outside of writing? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question either. Um, <laughs> what is life like? Well, I'm always dreaming of traveling, which COVID really kind of put a squash on that. Mm -hmm. So I'm still recovering, like most people probably are from, you know, things not being normal for a little bit. 
But yeah, it's like I'm struggling to find the time and space to do that because usually traveling kind of resets me and gives me ideas and inspires me with new stories. You know, and then it's nice to like write about a a place that you've actually been to. You know, it's cool that I could go on Google Maps or I can do a lot of research online about like a place or, you know, a topic. But, you know, going there in person and like, you know, touching it and feeling it and breathing it in and all those things is like, for me, is really like inspirational. And then just also getting out of my routine and what we do every single day and all that kind of stuff. So lots of boring stuff too. You know, like I go to work, I come home, I, you know, take care of my cats. I try and spend time with my family and friends. And hopefully they're during the summer going to be able to kind of put the pedal to the metal and work on polishing some of those manuscripts and maybe coming up with new stories. I'm kind of toying with maybe doing something a little bit sci-fi as well in the near future. Okay. Well... Teresa, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Same. Like, seriously, I'd have to say you have come up with some of the best questions that I've been asked. I use chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's a lie because you said they would have been very... Um, oh, they would have been mundane. obnoxious. Like, oh, <laughs> he's asking that. Okay. <laughs> well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? I mean, you kind of mentioned some things already, but maybe codify and reiterate? Well, I'm just releasing an audiobook of my first novel that was based on my experience in middle school living in a haunted house for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tried to blend the past with the present. So it's my first time that I try doing two integrated storylines. So we've got like a teenager who's living in Minnesota in a small town in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And he moves into this haunted house with his family and finds out that there's this ghost sleeping in his bed and walking around and doing all these things, right? And then there's some other related supernatural things that happen, kind of like more like a skinwalker type situation. So as you read the book, the other timeline is kind of exploring like how the ghost came to be. Like, so it's the female character and her experience in the house with her family. And so there's a little bit of a love triangle there too, because the reason she's kind of attached to the teenager in the 1980s is he reminds her of her lost love in her lifetime when she was alive. Mm. And so there's this kind of back and forth and how it's going to play out. And the teenager actually has to try and solve the problem with the house and see if he can, you know, save his family from supernatural destruction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I'm hoping the people will check that out. Yeah, so I think that would be one of the main things. And I'm also going to turn the short story collection into an audiobook as well. And if I had the funds, you know, this is something that maybe not everyone realizes. If you're an indie author and you're trying to get your stuff out there, you got to put your pennies towards it, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to save up. So if I, you know, were able to spend a lot of money, I would have wished for the collection to have two narrators, like a female voice to read the female stories and then like a guy to read the male narrated stories. I didn't realize it until I looked at the collection a little bit closer, but I think a lot of the narration is of male characters. Mm. It kind of leans heavily more towards that side, which is something that I was really afraid of doing in the past. Like writing about a character like other than yourself, mm. you always worry that you're maybe not going to get it right or something's going to sound weird or whatever. But those are the two main things that I'm kind of plugging at the moment. <laughs> All right. We will all look forward to that. So listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Teresa, thank you again for joining me. 
Thank you again. Appreciate it. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. Make sure to tune in next Tuesday where my guest will be a very talented screenwriter. And if you're a fan of both mainstream and indie horror film, you will be very familiar with his work. Until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Can't even brush my teeth